today, and I'd like to introduce it by way of a personal story. And I have a reason for telling this story. We're going to connect it up to a supporting verse that I'll bring in probably 10 minutes or so into the message. I remember one cold evening when I was 15 years old. Yeah, that was about 200 years ago, okay? I was 15 years old, and I was walking home. It was already dark, and I'm looking up at the sky, clear sky. Now, there was farms around where I was brought up. <clears throat> didn't have tons of light pollution, and I could see stars, lots of stars. And I'm just looking. I'm trying to pick out certain constellations, and I'm just amazed at how many stars there are. The next day, for some reason, I'm out in the yard, clear blue skies with some cumulus clouds, the puffy white clouds up there. But it's so blue. And I, I can't see the stars. I understand why. But the thought came to me, remembering all those stars, looking at this bright yellow-orange glow, the sun, and these beautiful clouds, you know, with rain droplets in them, condensation, a little bit of condensation there, though none of it's falling yet <clears throat> and wouldn't fall that day. I'm just so impressed with the beauty of, its all, of it all, and so I ask myself this question. Where did it all come from? And I wasn't brought up, as many of you have heard, religious. I had never set foot in a synagogue or a church in my entire life. And wouldn't for a number of years later. And it was intuitively obvious to me that somebody had to make this. The heavens, the stars, the earth, the sun, the sky, the clouds, the birds flying through the air, the grass. It's just obvious. It's something does not come from nothing. It wasn't until a number of years later after I became a Christian when I was 20 that I would learn that this was always from the time of the ancient Greek philosophers, some of them, through the Christian theologians and philosophers of the Dark and Middle Ages and the Renaissance period, I would learn that they had a saying, out of nothing, nothing comes, which was exactly what I had thought when I was 15 years old. I knew there had to be a God. I had no conception of what that God was like. I knew the heard of the Bible, and it talked about God, but I had never read it. We didn't talk about religion in my house. We didn't talk about God. I've told you before, when I was saved as a sophomore in college, and 20 years old, I didn't know what Easter was. I thought it was the Easter Bunny. I didn't know it was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how biblically, religiously, theologically illiterate I was. And yet, it was immediately obvious 
that somebody had to make everything. And I understood that to be God, though I didn't know what God was like. Three years later, I would go to college, and I would study a broad range of scientific things, math, physics, chemistry, biology. I even had a course in astronomy. One area of astronomy is called cosmology. It's studied in philosophy. It's studied in astronomy. What is cosmology? The cosmos, the universe. How did it all begin? Well, I'm at college. I'm going to get answers now because if anyone knows, it's the professors. Because something cannot come from nothing. And so the professor is talking about what was thought then and largely still is now. How the universe came into being with something called a Big Bang. When I want to hear about this, I want to, okay, a Big Bang. Okay, so did God use a Big Bang? Or is there no God? What's he going to tell me? And so he explains that at the time of the Big Bang, there was nothing but something called a singularity. An infinitely tiny point. No breath, no height, no depth, no space. Infinitely tiny. Not mega tiny, infinitely tiny. And infinitely dense. So I think, oh, the entire universe is in this singularity. But not really. Because according to that theory of the Big Bang the standard model of cosmology, all energy, matter, space, and time came into existence at the Big Bang. Now, when I hear the professor say this, I'm like, okay, there's no matter, and there's matter. There's no energy, and there's energy. There's no space, and suddenly there's space. There's no time, and suddenly there's time. He's telling me that everything, not just something, but everything came from nothing. That makes no That's science's answer. Science cannot allow God in the picture. Once you let God in, then science will collapse certain areas of science, speculative science, which is really a form of philosophical religion, will collapse under the weight of its own internal self-contradictions. They cannot allow God in. So what they basically say is everything came from nothing. Forget about evolution. Forget about long geological ages, start at the very beginning. God has to be in the picture. They try to rescue that in certain ways, and I don't want to get into that, but you can talk to me afterwards if, if you're at all interested, or talk to David Arruda, he knows this stuff. Danny, Danny Melendez knows it. Fred Poulin knows it. Uh, Gilson De Silva knows it. You can talk to any of us, and we can explain these questions to you and the Christian response that makes far more sense than 
everything came from nothing. Perhaps the most famous Christian philosopher and New Testament historian, William Lane Craig, says this about everything coming from nothing. If everything comes from nothing, then anything can come from nothing. Anything is part of everything. So why doesn't a pink unicorn appear on this stage some Sunday morning and make a mess on the carpet? Why can't that happen if something can come from nothing? He's making a point. He doesn't believe in pink unicorns. But he's making a point. If everything could come from nothing, then anything can come from nothing. It makes no sense whatsoever. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. The title of today's message is God Speaks. God is revealed in Psalm 19 as speaking through creation, speaking through his word, and believe it or not, speaking through the life of every believer in Christ, every true believer who's saved and born again, indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, like our brother Gilson said, God will speak through your life. You can know God personally and his hand at work in your life through an experience with God. An experience not based on feelings, but based on biblical truth. John, writing to the Christians in Ephesus in the fifth chapter of his first epistle, says this, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not wonder about, not, not be sure of, not toss a coin to see if you have eternal life, but that you may know that you have eternal life. You can experience God this very day, sitting in these seats, driving home, if you have a personal relationship with him. And hopefully sometime during the message, that'll come out, if not the individual who closes out our service will share the biblical gospel that explains how you can have a personal relationship with the Lord God and his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God speaks through creation, his word, and through your life. Whenever God speaks, it is for a purpose. It gives a testimony. God doesn't talk just to hear himself talk. I might do that sometime. Get carried away. I might, you, know, you might come over to my house and hear me talking to myself. Johnson, you idiot. That's what you'll often hear when I realize I made a mistake about something. Did something stupid. God, when he speaks, is giving a testimony, a witness for a very specific purpose. In this psalm, he gives three witnesses. The creation witness, the written witness, and the living witness. And that's when it'll get more practical, this message, the last few verses. If you take only one thing away from this morning's message, please let it be this. God speaks to you through creation and his word so that you may have unshakable faith. And he can speak then through you. Psalm 19 has three stanzas, and we're going to look at this 
psalm under these three headings. God speaks through creation. God speaks through his word. God speaks to and through you. Every one of you has trusted in Jesus Christ and Christ alone and his finished work on the cross, his shed blood, his death, bearing the sins of the world in his body. Every one of you who trusts in that biblical gospel, apart from works, God will speak to and through you. So let's get into this. God speaks through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse of the sky shows his handiwork or declares in this translation his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language in which their voice is not heard. God here is pictured as speaking constantly. He never stops. He speaks constantly to all, all without exception. It's the heavens, the majesty of the heavens, what I saw that night walking home, the stars. The expanse of the sky, of the heavens and of the sky. In Jewish theology, there were three heavens. The sky, the home of the birds and the clouds. Outer space, the home of the planets and the stars. And then the third heaven. Paul talks about being caught up. That's the home of God. He was caught up into the very throne room of God. Here, the sky and what we call outer space are declaring the glory of God. Does it all the time. Day after day, not just some days, all days. And not just in the daytime. Night after night, every night is what the psalmist is getting across here. It reveals knowledge of God. They are speaking in a way, not with audible words, but by their majesty and their glory, showing that there must be one of greater majesty, majesty, greater glory, who created them. There is no one who's immune from this. Whether they live in the penthouse in some place in Manhattan, or whether they live in a jungle in Papua New Guinea, anywhere in between. There is no speech, nor are there words that their voice is not heard. God speaks constantly to all. God, creation, speaks clearly to all. God's speaking through creation. Their measuring line, is the idea here, has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent or a tabernacle for the sun. God has hung the sun, so to speak, in a tent in the heavens, is the picture that the writer is trying to convey. But he speaks clearly to all. They're measuring line. You can measure a precise distance. It's something very exact. God is speaking clearly here to the ends of the world. He's not missing any part. There is no one excluded. It's to all. He says the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. The sun 
shines brightly. The face of the bridegroom undoubtedly shone brightly when he came out of his chamber. He says that the son rejoices as a strong, rejoices as a strong man to run its race. And then he pictures the race as a circle or a racetrack. Not that our, our sun is revolving in a circle around the earth. No, not at all. But he pictures it like running a race. For, because from our perspective, even modern day meteorologists use the same language that the biblical writers did. The sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. They talk about sunrise and sunset. Even though it's, the sun doesn't rise and doesn't set, it's the earth that rotates, giving the appearance of a sunrise and a sunset. He rejoices like a strong, strong man to run his course or his race. Its rising or its circuit is from one end of the heaven to the other end. And nothing is hidden from its heat. Every place on this earth will, within 24 hours, be exposed to the heat of the sun. Clearly, in a day for almost the whole earth and a couple times a year for the caps, north and south poles. They, they, for a period of time, six months of the year, they'll be exposed constantly to light and then constantly to darkness the other half of the year. Creation speaks clearly to all. Just as the sun shines on the earth clearly, so does creation speak clearly. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle Perhaps thinking of Psalm 19 teaches this in Romans chapter 1. And this is going to be the connection to everything coming from nothing in the mind of the scientist who rejects any notion of God. He says in, in Romans 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress hold down the truth of God in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth. They don't want to let the truth up to fill their system, to fill their mind with problems that they need to deal with. So they suppress, they hold down. That's the intent of the original Greek language that Paul wrote in. Suppresses to hold down. Because that which is known, God, known about God is evident within them. Why? Because God made it evident to them. How? He's about to tell us how God made himself evident to every person. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that... What's the purpose? They are without excuse. They hold down the truth of God. They don't want to deal with it because they know what creation testifies. God speaks through creation about his invisible attributes. Two things. His, his eternal power and his divine nature. 
so that they are without excuse. And then he goes on to explain further. For even though they knew God, they did not see fit to honor him as God or to give thanks to him. He cannot be part of their life, their thought processes. They reject all that. And what happens when you reject the knowledge of God, even the knowledge of God in creation, and believe that everything came from nothing? I mean, you think about a magician pulling a rabbit out of, out of a hat or something out of his sleeve. At least you got the hat. At least you got the sleeve. At least you have a hand. But something coming from nothing, you don't have the hand. You don't have the hat. You don't have a sleeve. You've got nothing. And so you're not pulling a rabbit out of anything. They didn't honor him or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened they may claim oh i don't know god well maybe that's true their mind is so darkened in their understanding from years of rejecting what was the obvious truth that something doesn't come from nothing that their foolish heart is darkened but at one point if not even that day when you talk to them, and I've interacted with easily over 100 atheists in discussion, they at least at one point knew God, and some of them still know God when you're talking to them. They're suppressing the knowledge of the truth. Now, what happens when their foolish heart is darkened? Professing themselves to be wise they became fools. That's what they are. And what do you do when you become a fool? You exchange the glory of God for what? A glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible man. And notice the degradation. Man, the pinnacle of God's creation, even in their minds, the highest of all living creatures on the earth. Notice, man... They exchange the, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible man or of birds or of four-footed animals that walk on the ground or even crawling creatures. The further they suppress the knowledge of God, the more their foolish heart is darkened, the more professing themselves to be wise they become fools and the degradation goes deeper and deeper until you can't get any lower than crawling on the ground. May this not describe anyone here. See, man must worship something. God created man to be a worshiper. Whether they believe in God and Christ and have trusted Christ, whether they hold to some other religion, even if they're an atheist or an agnostic. I remember one, one morning at work. I was in early, and so was one of my coworkers. And so we're both working, and he, he calls over to my cubicle and says he needs my help with something. So I go over, and I talk with Vern, and I help him. Now... You know, he, he just happened to say something afterwards 
And so I thought, oh, this is a perfect time to bring in Christ. He already knows I'm a Christian. I've talked to him before, but he opened the door again. So I started to bring the gospel in. And he says, Paul, you already know. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe in God. And so I said to him, Vern, of course you do. And he said, no, I don't. I said, sure, Vern, you do. He says, I don't. Not making much progress yet. And I said, Vern, you really do. And he says, okay, what God do I believe in? And I said, Vern, you believe in yourself. You believe in man as the highest God. You're a humanist. You've told me that. But even more than that, you're the highest God in your pantheon of gods. You're the one who decides what's right and what's wrong for you. You're the one who makes the, the big decisions in life. You're the one who governs your circle. Of course you are a God. Man was created by God to be a worshiper. Man has to believe in God, and man worships that God. There's no other way around it. It's just, how do they define God? Who are they going to obey? Who is the ultimate authority in their life? It's either God and Christ or it's going to be something else. And for the atheist and many agnostics, it's themselves. They decide. It's the image of the corruptible man. God speaks clearly through his creation. We know this, that there has to be a creation because something doesn't come from nothing, much less everything coming from nothing. Secondly, God speaks through his word. God speaks perfectly through his word, resulting in restoration. In another sense, you can translate restoring, converting the soul. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. When David wrote this, he was thinking of the Mosaic law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But do you know what's contained in that law? That law itself was perfect. Why? Paul tells us in Galatians. That law, which showed everyone to be a sinner before God. Not just Ten Commandments, there's 613 commandments in the law. We break them without even knowing about them. Of course, that law is fulfilled and done away now in Christ, but at one point, 613 commandments. And the law was perfect, even though everyone who ever lived broke that moral law. How was it perfect? Paul tells us in Galatians, the real purpose of the law was to be our schoolmaster, to hold us by the hand. The schoolmaster was a slave in a wealthy household who would take the children to the tutor to be taught by a public tutor. If, even though they were wealthy, they didn't have enough money for private tutors. That's what the schoolmaster. The law leads us to Christ. Why? Because according to the New Testament, everyone is shut up under sin because of the law. Paul thought he was perfect until he understood coveting. When he understood coveting, he realized his heart was an idol factory. 
and he coveted things. He wanted things. And he was found guilty by his own realization, the conviction of the Holy Spirit on his conscience. But God's law is perfect because it accomplishes the purpose that God wanted it to, to lead us to Christ, to show us according, as the New Testament says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All our righteous deeds, all our attempts to show ourselves good to God, that we don't need Christ, we can get there on our own, he says, are like filthy rags. The scripture says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You don't deserve mercy. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. The law of the Lord is perfect because it shows us we are sinners in need of a Savior and it restores or converts the soul. It brings us into a right relationship with God in Christ. God speaks with the utmost certainty through his word, giving wisdom. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's sure. Whenever God speaks, it is a sure thing. You can bank on it. You would hope Vegas would give odds on it. God has promised that unless the sun ceases to shine and the moon ceases to come out at night, he will never discard his earthly people, Israel. They are always his chosen people. How do you know what earthly people God loves and has chosen for themselves. We're a heavenly people, the church. But the Jews are an earthly people. You can know God loves them even to this day, even though they rejected Messiah, their leaders turned them over to the Romans to be crucified, all part of God's plan to pay the penalty for the sins of the world when he hung on the cross you know that there still is people because the sun rises every day and the moon comes out every night. Let those things stop and then you know for certain God has rejected the Jews. God speaks with the utmost certainty through his word. He is sure of everything. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. It makes wise the simple. The word of God gives wisdom to even the most uneducated people. You don't need to be educated to understand the Bible. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. I mean, it's pretty easy to understand. Even the unsaved, if he's in a bar, if he keeps his mouth shut, he gets to keep all his teeth. It's that simple. These kinds of things apply to everybody. They make wise. It's smart to understand God's word and reality. I can tell you what I'm not going to do if I ever see some sort of argument that looks like it's going to lead to a fight. I'm not going to self-identify as Adriano or our brother Kevin Royds and go out there and stop the fight. I'm calling 911. 
okay? Just because I identify as Adriano or Kevin doesn't mean I am Adriano or Kevin. That would be foolish. But God's word is very clear on how he created not only the universe, but each and every one of us. Understanding the testimony of the Lord is sure and it will make you wise. God speaks righteously through his word, providing joy. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. He only speaks righteously. He never speaks unrighteously. If I see something in God's word that I think is wrong, that I think is not righteous, not moral, is God wrong or am I wrong? I mean, that's an easy one, right? God's statutes or precepts are right. And the, the righteousness of God's word causes the heart to rejoice. Have you ever read portions of scripture? Maybe you're going through a trial. Maybe there's some sort of trouble in your life. Maybe there's been an interpersonal conflict. And you turn to the scriptures and God speaks powerfully to you through a passage of scripture. And your spirit's just lifted up. You know you can be victorious in his strength and the power of his might. God speaks righteously and he provides joy through his word. God speaks without confusion through his word, helping us to see things clearly. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, I used to do a lot of backpacking and, and some camping, and I... Sometimes, uh, you know, you, you can't carry all the water you need with you. I mean, water's heavy. It's eight pounds a gallon. I mean, you can only carry so much. So you have to collect water along the way. But not all water, especially if it's low and not high up on a mountain, is not always very clean. And so... I would scoop up some water. I had different ways to filter it, but one was a gravity filter, a big bag, and I would tie it to a tree branch, or if there was none around, I'd just have to hold it. And gravity, I mean, this water was cloudy. You know, light brown, murky, there's all sorts of things in it. You know, decaying vegetable matter, and who knows what else. You try to look through it, you can't see your hand on the other side. It's not very clear. But as it goes through this filter, the bag that receives the purified water is clear. You can see through it. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It's like that purified water. You can see through it. It gives light. It allowed light to come in through that bag to enlighten my eyes. I could make out trees and things through that bag of water, whereas before it was filtered, I couldn't see anything. I wouldn't be able to see my hand on the other side. God speaks without confusion through his word, helping us to see things clearly. You want to see the situations and circumstances of your life, whether they be blessings, whether they be tragedies and trials, whether they just be everyday circumstances and situations. You want to see them clearly. Understand them the way God wants you to understand them, his word is going to give light to your eyes.
The scripture says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus Christ said he is the light of the world. Because of that, everyone who trusts in him, we can be the light of the world, he taught as well. Reflecting his light through us. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God speaks about obedience through his word and his values will never change. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Recall a few summers ago. We actually did it two summers. uh, Psalm Psalm 90. And in there, it talks about the fear of the Lord. And we spent quite a bit of time in that message demonstrating from Scripture what the fear of the Lord is. It's not reverential law. Yes, every child of God should have reverential law for their heavenly Father. The fear of the Lord is defined so clearly in Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. You want to know what the fear of the Lord is? It's to hate evil. You can't do evil and say you hate evil. What do you need to do? You need to do good. In other words, you need to be obedient. The fear of the Lord is a Hebrew expression for obedience. We showed that so clearly when we studied Psalm 90. The fear of the Lord. Obedience to the Lord is clean. You don't get yourself dirty with the sins, the guilt, the conviction that comes from sin if you obey the Lord. It endures forever. God's moral law does not change. If something is wrong yesterday, it's wrong today, it's going to be wrong tomorrow, yay and forever. God speaks about obedience through his word. To please God, we need to obey God. His word will do that. It'll teach us obedience to God, and it, those truths endure forever And if you embrace those and love them as a child of God, you will endure forever as well. God speaks only truth through, through his word without anything immoral. The judgments of the Lord are true. When God makes a judgment, it is always true, it is always accurate, it is always right. It's never half right. When we think God is wrong on something, what have we done? We've taken God off of the judgment seat and put him down in the position of the accused and we climb up to the judgment seat and we look down at God. We take the position of God. Oh, no, 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 God can't be judged. I'm going to judge what's right and wrong, what in his word is true, what I think is wrong. I pass judgment. Does that make any sense? That we are going to judge God when he is the judge of the living and the dead. His judgments are true. Can I say my judgment, my opinion, my decisions are always true, always 100% right, always correct? No, I can't say that. What kind of person can say that? No honest person can say that. You know, you can't say, I was wrong once, I thought I made a mistake, or I thought I was wrong. No, no, not, not at all. God is the only one who's never made a mistake, who's never been wrong. His judgments, his decisions are always true. They are righteous altogether, individually and collectively. You know that every single one is individually true and right because altogether 
They all are. You know, a chain is intact if none of the links are broken. Break one link, the chain's broken. It's not intact. Same thing all together. Every single judgment of the Lord is right, is true, is correct. God speaks valuable and palatable, tasty things through his word that should be desired. Regarding the law of the Lord, the law, his testimony, his precepts or statutes, his commandments, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord, regarding all these things, they are more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. They are more valuable than gold. If God gave each one of us a choice today, unlimited gold or an unlimited understanding of his word, what would we pick? I'll tell you what the wrong choice is. It's gold. That's the wrong choice. Christ said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can he give in exchange for his soul? You can't buy your soul. Our soul is priceless. There is only one thing that can pay for the soul of a person. And that's the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the only thing. The imperishable blood of Christ. As of a lamb without spot and blemish. The word of God is sweeter than honey. My wife has a co-worker. They raise their own bees. Never have I tasted honey like this. I once lived in a place with farms all around. And at the local farmer's market, there were all these different kinds of honey. Yeah, some were wildflower. They didn't know what they were. But they planted large areas of just one kind of plant that bees would feed on. And then they would have another area. And they knew exactly what that honey was like. I tried every single one of them just to see what the difference was. But my wife's co-worker's honey, she's not sure of what all the flowers are, but I have never tasted better honey. It's sweet, but not sickening sweet. It is so smooth. Oh, just a drop just spreads all over your tongue as it warms up. And all your taste buds, sweet taste buds, start firing. Never have I tasted honey like this. But the word of God is sweeter to the soul experiencing bitter trial, bitter disappointment, grievous loss. There is nothing better than God's word to provide sweetness to your experience that you're going through. Sweetness to your life. God speaks valuable and tasty things through his word and we should desire it. More desirable. He doesn't force feed us. You know, I remember when I was five years old, I used to get these strep throats all the time, multiple times a year. And what would I get since they weren't quite sure? I mean, it was even three years, but you know, probably I could have swallowed a pill at five, you know, but they just kept on with this orange-flavored penicillin liquid. 
my mother would come. It looked like a snow shovel. It was only like a, a, a tablespoon, though. And she would shove it down my gullet. And I learned quick not to spit it out because another one was going to follow. This orange taste is so bad. To this day, I can't eat orange jello because it reminds me exactly of that penicillin. I mean, I start to get queasy. I didn't desire that, even though it was good for me. God's word is good for you, and we should desire it because it's not like that orange penicillin. It's like honey. It's sweet. It's wonderful. God speaks words of warning that require obedience and yield future reward. Moreover, he says, by them is your servant warned. God's word has promises of great encouragement and great hope. Promises about blessing. They tell us how God loves us. But we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. And we are engaged as Christians in spiritual warfare. And so God's word will also warn us so that we don't get ourselves into trouble. And in keeping those God's word, obeying God's word, there is great reward. God doesn't have to reward us. It's enough that out of gratitude and appreciation for what he did in his son Jesus Christ on the cross, we should want to keep his word. But he knows... He remembers our frame that we are but dust, as David wrote. In keeping God's word, there is great reward. Sometimes we reap the reward in this life. Keep our mouth shut, we keep all our teeth. Sometimes it's future reward. God speaks through creation. He speaks through his word and quickly. God speaks to you and through you in the last three verses of the psalm. The Lord speaks to you through his word producing conviction. This is one of the first and most important ways. He just talked about warning, and the Holy Spirit will convict our conscience when we're about to go astray and when we do go astray. The psalmist says this, Who can discern his errors? Who can see his errors? The thought is if we could see them, we wouldn't commit them. You know, I'd like you all to learn from me, from my mistakes, because you can't possibly want to make them all yourself. We can't always discern our errors. So if you see errors in me, learn from them so that you don't make the same ones yourself. We are not the best judge of ourself. We always think of ourselves too highly. He asks that question, who can discern his errors? The answer is no one. That's the expected answer. That's what the original Hebrew that he wrote in expects. No one. We just are not good judges of ourselves. We often judge ourselves too highly. And so he says, in light of this, show me my hidden faults. Is there anyone here who doesn't think they have hidden faults? I'll tell you, if there's any husband here, let me talk to your wife and see if you have any hidden faults. You can talk to my wife. She doesn't keep a list any longer. She ran out of paper. No, she's too kind to keep a list now, but she can tell you I have a myriad of faults. The Lord speaks to you through his word producing a holy desire. 
He says also, keep back your servant from presumptuous or rebellious sins, high-handed sins. Take this, God, in your face kind of sins. Rebellion. Keep back. And is there anyone here who thinks they can't rebel against God? Any believer in Christ? Most of us have probably found out at least once in our life what we're capable of. And it breaks our heart, brings tears to our eyes, crushes us, humbles us. But the psalmist prays, Lord, keep me far away. Keep me. I'm your servant. I should never engage in rebellious sin against him. And then he says this, let them not rule or have dominion over me. Because that's what happens when we rebel against the Lord. We sear our conscience as with a hot iron. It becomes insensitive. Conviction is a blessed grace from the Lord. It's a good thing when we're convicted. It's a very terrible thing when we don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He says, let them not have dominion over me. If I'm, if I'm shown my hidden faults and I correct them, if the Lord stops me from rebelling against him, then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted or innocent of great transgression. And lastly, the Lord not only speaks to you, but he speaks through you, bringing himself glory, strengthening you and others via the gospel. The psalmist closes out this psalm with these words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He begins the psalm talking about God. He closes the psalm using the word, the name Lord. Remember from last week? That's the divine name. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. When you see all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the divine name of God. Sometimes Lord just has a, a capital L. I guess it's this way, right? You know, loser. How's that for a loser? You even get the L backwards, all right? That's a real loser. Capital L with lowercase o-r-d, that's a different word. Adonai, sovereign Lord or master. Here it's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Let the words of my mouth this could be seen. This isn't just his inner desire. What comes out of the mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ taught, what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. It shows what his heart's desire is, to have words that are acceptable. And it comes from the meditation of the heart. That's the source. And he says, let them be acceptable in your sight. He is not a humanist who is the ultimate God of his life, deciding what's right and wrong. He wants what he says and what he desires in his heart to be acceptable not just to himself, not to others, but to God, to the Lord God, who, has, who is his rock and his redeemer. A rock is stable. Remember how the Lord Jesus Christ finished out the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7? He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the, upon the rock. 
And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a man who built his house upon the sand. The rains came, the floods ascended, the winds blew and beat against the house, and the house fell, and great was its fall. A rock is a picture of stability. Jesus Christ in Scripture is referred to as the rock. The rock that will never be shaken, that will never crumble. And he refers to him as his redeemer, a covenant word. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what Paul wrote in Galatians 3. It's a word describing what Christ did on the cross to obtain salvation for all who would trust in him. God speaks through creation. God speaks through his word. God speaks to and through you who trust in him for salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you so much for the power of your word. Oh, dear God, we thank you so much that you have spoken so loudly and so clearly and so constantly through creation, through your word, every time we open it. And dear God, how can we thank you enough that you have spoken to us, that you have allowed us to hear the words of life that have saved us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. And dear God, we desire to be your servant this morning. Would you be pleased to not only speak to us, but through us so that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, might shine forth from our lives and even from our church fellowship collectively. We thank you so much for this, Lord God. We praise you, we worship you, we love you. We bless your name. Amen.